6 o'clock in London, it's 1 p.m. in New York, it's 1 a.m. in Hong Kong, it's 3 a.m. in Sydney, 10 a.m. in San Francisco, and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Anyway, greetings, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world today, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Patrick L. Young, the IPO Bid Livestream Series 6, Episode 3 starts here. We're into Episode 33, and welcome back to an edition for the first time in ages, we can safely presume that in our standard two-way price of zero to infinity, for once it looks a lot closer to the zero end of the infinity scale for Bitcoin, as Bitcoin is actually somewhat subject to gravity. After all, it was good grief just before I entered the studio, and almost manageable something like $37,000. Good grief. Meanwhile, apparently, U.S. Treasury bonds are squeaking up again after yields of 2.4%. Good grief. On the 30-year Treasury, we're closer to 2.3 as I speak. At the nexus of exchanges and cryptocurrency, bricks subjected to gravity are one of the few things which fall faster than Coinbase stock. Even the London Stock Exchange Group managed to bounce this week, while Coinbase didn't get much past well. A pure play dead catter. Not too much of a bounce there. True, it isn't below 200 yet, although it has got mightily close, but the stock is still down around 30% from an issue price, which amounts to nearly halving from its highs. And it hasn't even managed 50 days of trading yet. Last week wasn't helped by a tech outage, albeit when volume ticked up as various regulatory travails weighed on the crypto price. At least there were several exchanges that also swooned in sympathy amongst the crypto kiddies as they had to switch off and reboot to cope with the volume uptick as sellers raced for the exit. Gosh. All this and more has already been covered in greater detail in Exchange Invest Daily, the unique newsletter of the Bourse business. Send us an email or hit me up on whatever social media stream you're looking at this particular edition of the IPOVID livestream. Patrick L. Young is the name, and we'll be happy to get you signed up for a 30-day free trial so you can better understand the exchange business. Our guest today is discussing well, life at the sharp end of prediction markets. Flip Pido is the founder and manager, or the managing director of Sharp Square Capital LLC, an alternative investment management firm specializing in that wondrously exciting micro niche event futures. For over a decade, Flip has been involved in the development, operation, and evangelism of political event markets as head of the American Civics Exchange, producer of the excellent prediction market content network Old Bull TV, and also market curator at Predicted. Previously, Flip worked as an investment analyst for Boyer Asset Management, and he's a certified fraud examiner who worked for Arthur Anderson, graduate of Notre Dame with a BA in economics and UVA's Darden School's MBA. Flip also holds a Series 3 license and is a CFA charter holder. Flip, good evening. Welcome to the show. Where in the world are you today? Well, hello, Patrick. Good evening. I'm in New York, so it's good afternoon for me, but uh, good uh, good morning, evening, middle of the night, uh, midday to viewers around the world. And Patrick, thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's lovely to be with you, if only virtually. It's great to see you all together. It's a delight to actually find somebody who's in New York, because we've had a series of supposedly New York residents, and they've all been in Florida for the course of the last <laughs> 10, 12 months while we've been doing this live stream. So uh, interesting to see somebody actually in New York. And uh, well, you're one of several who've been on the show most recently, I think Lynn Martin from the Intercontinental Exchange. So Flip, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, you've had an interesting career in financial markets doing various tasks. How did you come to be in finance in the first place? Uh, well, yeah, my career, and as you mentioned, really, really started out first uh, first job out of right out of college was in uh, forensic accounting for for Arthur Anderson. But but since that stint, um, it's been sort of a combination of uh, financial markets and politics, and in, in particular, increasingly at the intersection uh, of the two. Uh, so this project that you, you mentioned in the in the leader there, American Civics Exchange, is a firm that I founded a number of years ago with the ultimate goal of bringing this. Um, Fledgling maybe is even too aggrandized a word, but this uh, this theoretical asset class that we that we envision, uh, uh, namely a uh, you know a regulated on exchange environment trading environment for uh, uh, 
uh, event futures tied to political outcomes. So in other words, having an exchange traded mechanism by which investors and companies in highly regulated industries can offset, manage their policy risk, their political risk, the same way that they would offset or manage any other exogenous financial risk, whether it's the price of, of soybeans or interest rates or Forex uh, you know, companies don't want to be, and we don't want companies to be in the business of speculating on or trying to manage and influence actual policy outcomes. It's obviously something bipartisan, typically bipartisan uh, hue and cry about companies and money having an undue influence on politics. Uh, and it's because politics has, for most stakeholders, an undue influence on their money and the way they conduct business. And so if, if we want to discourage the existing sort of best tools that that the private sector has to manage that exposure, namely lobbying and influence, buying politicians or or uh, or uh, financing their campaigns at very least, uh, then why not allow them to simply offset uh, those adverse um, uh, the adverse impact of the the policy changes that they fear, whether it's an increase in the tax rate, whether it's the approval or disapproval of, say, a new vaccine or your competitor's new vaccine, uh, change in regulatory uh, uh, rules for, you know, name your highly regulated industry of, cho <coughs> of choice, financial services, energy, technology, uh, biotech, the, you know, the list is effectively as long as, uh, as there are uh, lines of business. So uh, th this was sort of our general philosophical approach to uh, trying to bring this asset class in, into being, trying to, to uh, arrive at a place where we treat uh, political risk much like any other uh, risk to be traded in uh, in risk markets. That the the primary difference being that if you're tr if the underlying uh, commodity, so to speak, that you're trading is an event, the occurrence or non-occurrence of a uh, uh, ideally a, a concretely describable, discrete binary event happening or not, this tax rate is raised or not, this legislation is enacted or is not, this politician is elected over this other politician or is not. Um, so structurally, that's sort of the primary difference. When you're talking about event futures, it's it's not only cash settled, but the commodity, so to speak, underlying it is totally illusory. And, and in fact, that it's illusory nature can make it somewhat uh, difficult to uh, to boil down into that discrete and concrete uh, definition that I was uh, uh, alluding to. You mentioned also that uh, I worked for a number of years for Predict It, and this is the um, unregulated but still legal uh, U.S.-based uh, uh, real money prediction market, uh, similar to what uh, InTrade did a number of years ago, which obviously you're familiar with, Patrick. Um, and uh, for Predict It, I basically worked in market curation for them. So bo both identifying what would be interesting markets uh, to trade, to list, uh, but also then how to write the rules for them. And, and over the five years that I uh, wrote those rules on over 5,000 uh, products for Predict It, we learned a lot through trial and error about just how difficult it can be to, uh, to specify unambiguously uh, seemingly simple uh, outcomes. Everything from, you know, will the U.S. government shut down due to lack of appropriations or on what date? Will a certain cabinet member no longer hold his job? Uh, or how many times will Donald Trump tweet this week? Uh, things that seem pretty simple with you know, readily identifiable settlement sources and unambiguous, um, unambiguous settlement data uh, suddenly would grow from you know one paragraph to 10 lengthy walls full of text defining all the different edge cases that we would kind of discover along the way. So um, that that's broadly been been our overall goal through a number of these kinds of projects, both in regulated un and unregulated or less regulated space. Obviously, there's a number of interesting um, uh, interesting projects going on in the in the cryptocurrency space too, which operate obviously a little, little bit of more of a gray legal area, at least in the United States. Um, and uh, you, you mentioned also that um, uh, this firm, Sharp Square Capital, that that is a, a fund that that we've begun to begun to put together. We've organized the fund, not yet begun raising money for it. But this is tied to yet another similar project uh, called Calshi, another U.S.-based uh, exchange, which is actually at the other end of the regular regulatory spectrum as predicted. Which again, as an unregulated uh, market operating under no action relief from the CFTC. Calshi, on the other hand, is a designated contract market, the same way Intercontinental Exchange or 
Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So it's the, the, they're, they're under that full you know, regulatory boot of the CFTC. But the benefit of that is that it affords them the ability to cater to a somewhat more institutional clientele. Now, they do have um, uh, position limits, not as stringent as the predicted ones, but that still keeps it from being uh, usable as a true institutional hedging mechanism. Uh, but they're large enough position limits that we see an opportunity there for a fund to get involved in terms of providing liquidity and doing some discretionary trading. So um, it's a number of different um, pies that we have our thumbs in, but all kind of under the same uh, uh, general uh, philosophy, general thesis that that politics can and should be and ought to be and, and will increasingly be uh, a tradable asset class that not only benefits the direct market participants, but but given the nature of these information markets, the price discovery emanating from these prediction markets or, or information market exchanges, event futures exchanges uh, are useful to the broader public both citizens, policymakers, and business business owners, homeowners, small business owners, families, uh, trying to better, uh, more accurately handicap the future and make their own you know, private and, and uh, financial decisions based on various probabilistic futures that they may be able to better you know, get a handle on given that price discovery coming from markets like these. Excellent. So there we've got the, the whole scene very quickly and the, the whole idea behind the prediction markets, the sports markets, and so on. As you mentioned, yes, I mean, I have a little slight pedigree in that myself. I mean, in fact, uh, going all the way back to this little tone, Capital Market Revolution, which was my very first attempt to the book in the hmm. financial futures format, looking towards the thing that later became known as fintech. I mean, I was actually talking about the idea of sports and prediction markets. And obviously, yeah, I was a, a founder, co-founder, and then a director of Intrade, which became also Trade Sports, um, or GSX Trade Sports, which became Intrade, which then became, I think, Trade Sports. Again, I honestly got lost somewhere along the line. But um, certainly, I was long gone by the time there was this idea to go into the American market where things were not legal for the very simple reason that amongst the few things that I will not do in life is wear an orange jumpsuit. And I mean, it's quite an interesting environment as to how things totally changed. Let me just interrupt that right there to say thank you very much, Mike Velasco, for liking us on Facebook. Thoroughly appreciate your support. Thank you also, Marianne Madeira, for the like on Facebook. And if you're watching us this evening, ladies and gentlemen, those little like buttons are really helpful because it races us up to the top of the artificially intelligent, amazing algorithmic whizzy things by which search engines decide what other people might see. And therefore, if you want them to learn the sort of things you're learning this evening from watching this show, it would really help us in order to have a little bit of love. Don't forget to ask us a question. I'm here with Flip Pido. We're talking about prediction markets and we're at the sharp end of prediction markets in every possible sense. Let us know what your question is. We'll be happy to talk those markets. A couple of things that arose, actually, I was thinking just as you were talking your way through it, Flip. I mean, first of all, you mentioned how you're talking about these markets, and now we've actually got the first appearance of a designated content market, which is effectively mm -hmm. the equivalent of a futures exchange for the, the uninitiated, essentially regulated by the CFTC. But it's very interesting because hasn't there also been some movement recently where some other prediction markets more at the sports end of the spectrum have been trying to get regulation, and they seem to have run into problems? Uh, yeah, that's right. Here you're talking about... Uh uh, Eris, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah, and it's interesting. So, Eris applied for uh, some sports-related, NFL-related uh, futures contracts to the CFTC, and uh, one of the commissioners, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, was possibly Contends, who on his way out, uh, um, he won't be at the commission very much longer, so maybe felt more free to uh, speak freely, um, suggested that uh, contracts on things like NFL outcomes are rightfully under the purview of the CFTC, not just to ban them, but that they they have they should have a home under the existing regulatory landscape, which was an interesting bit of a shift, even though, or even if, I should say, Aerosex doesn't wind up with, um, with NFL-connected uh, futures contracts anytime soon. Uh, that was an interesting step forward, at least rhetorical step forward for a sitting commissioner, one among five at the CFTC, where the, um, the overarching this our first principle of of uh appropriateness for uh prospective new contracts on a dcm as you put it on the regulated futures exchange in the us is the economic purpose test so you know yeah. i've heard b before to risk management or hedging and how we see politics as fitting rightfully within that regime uh there needs to be 
uh, sort of a natural two-sided demand, actual hedging demand, not just speculative demand. Obviously, speculators are allowed to and encouraged to and needed for uh, for a properly functioning, liquid, robust futures exchange, any kind of financial exchange. But at the core of it, there needs to be that natural, you know, inherent uh, demand among uh, among um, the market participants. So the thing you're trading, the risk that you're offsetting or standardizing needs to impact one group negatively and one group positively. So, so that the market itself can be an efficient way to reallocate or share that risk uh, with the liquidity then to be enhanced through disinterested speculators. Um, and we've always felt there's a, a very easy case to make for virtually any uh, policy outcome, political outcome, given that there's usually a winner or a loser when you change the way that the, the rules are drawn. Uh, the rules around commerce. Um, I think it's a, 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 a credible but much more difficult leap to say the same about sporting events. And you can certainly say, well, okay, the, the owners of the team, the sponsors of the, the, the team and the, and the star players on the team and their own brands, these are multi-million, multi if not multi-billion dollar concerns. And so obviously they have a financial interest in various outcomes. Uh, everything on down to you know season ticket holders uh, or the venue of uh, a prospective championship game, um, but it's a much narrower set universe of directly affected natural hedgers. Um, so again, it's not to say that's not a credible argument about the economic purpose of a futures exchange on sporting events or you know pop culture items, Academy Award winners, things like these. Um, but it, but it's a, it's a it's a a, a higher bar uh, to clear, I think. Uh, and so it was, it was interesting to see that the CFTC, not that they institutionally were necessarily entertaining it, but again, that one of the commissioners was speaking favorably about the idea. And ultimately I think it's, it's the way that we'll, we'll move as a country and a, a world, uh, you know, in terms of bring more and more of these kinds of products uh, on exchange, obviously things that are more directly tied or historically tied to straight up gambling, traditional gambling are going to be harder because the regulator doesn't want to become a, a uh, the CFTC doesn't want to become a federal gaming regulator. Um, and so th again, th that's part of why sports related futures are going to be among the highest bars. But again, very, very interesting that even rhetorically, they're moving in that direction. It is interesting. And I mean, obviously, there was also the history a number of years ago where the Hollywood Stock Exchange was trying to get into being a real money prediction market. And as I recall, they were pushed back very hard because the powers mm -hmm. that be in Hollywood itself were extremely unhappy about the idea of speculations over the profits of their movie, although it was never actually entirely clear that they weren't just unhappy at the idea that somebody else might be able to make money of it because it would seem that actually movies had an incredible speculative series of people who would like to really truly be risk hedgers in that whole uh, train of movies from start to finish given the production, the distributors and all the shareholders who've essentially hedged their risk into it. And it is interesting how that's going. And certainly, I mean, I must say, I think you know, the sports futures market is quite plausible as something, although I understand where you're coming from, that you know, politics are going to be there. I think that leads us into, I mean, we do have a question actually at the moment from Marianne Madeira. Hello, Marianne. It's lovely to hear from you this evening. She was actually asking, you know, do you think there will be an Olympic futures contract? And uh... Uh, so that's interesting. I guess it depends on uh, what it would be tied to. So I believe, and I'm see if I can pull it up here uh, in real time. At Predicted a couple of years ago, we had one on the selection of the host city. Yes, this was on the 2024. Right. Would it be Los Angeles? And this was. Uh, well, whatever year this was uh, relevant is a couple of years ago, obviously, uh, four years ago, I guess. Um, but in terms of contracts on, say, who will win the gold medal and the bobsled, things like that, I, I think, again, that's sort of closer to the NFL style uh, markets in terms of whether uh, various national regulators would approve them as uh, financial products versus a, a gaming product uh, or, you know, gambling matter. Um Again, this is something that I think, uh, and I don't know offhand, but I would guess uh, probably does already exist on the crypto-based prediction markets because they're really much more sort of freewheeling in terms of what can be listed on them. Even within that world, some are more centralized than others. On some of them, even the creation of, the, of new markets is totally decentralized. So you can go and put up your own uh, market on whatever you'd like. Um, so I'm sure to some extent those exist uh, within the crypto world. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of, 
actual futures on on outcomes of sporting events. I think again, that's that's. I think we'll get there eventually, but I don't think that's kind of right around the corner. It's it's interesting though because the U.S. has been so slow in this whole area because I don't mm-hmm. know whether it's like Calvinist mentality or something that uh, came over from Boston when they spookily landed in Boston in that famous boat all those years ago, having set sail from Boston. But the, the certainly there's a big difference with say Europe, and I mean you know Betfair has been hugely successful for over twenty years now, and in fact actually it's interesting you talk about decentralization of. The idea of products, because in fact, originally Betfair was called. Well, originally there was Betfair and there was Flutter, and Flutter you could actually pick your market, create your market, and effectively it was a decentralized peer-to-peer market. But then it had a centralized platform for the execution, which is which is sort of almost where we've ended up in crypto terms today with some of the markets right. you're talking about. And it's certainly very interesting to see how that's that's turned around the world in terms of. Um, you know, they do have prediction markets on everything, including the Oscars and the Olympics and you name it on Betfair to this day, but it's not necessarily open to U.S. citizens due to regulation or U.S. residents. And, uh, right. Well, it's thriving in Europe. I mean, thriving in many parts mm-hmm. of Europe. So when you look at, I mean, the political landscape to move to there, I mean, it's a fascinating. Thank you very much, Marianne, for your question, by the way, Marianne Madeira. Delighted to see you this evening. When you look at the, you know, where we're at with the, the political prediction landscape, um, mm-hmm. well, let, me, let me ask, how does that really work in terms of giving me, I mean, I can understand how I will put on a hedge very quickly against electoral outcomes. And clearly, the elections that have just gone, pa- gone past, there were some quite stark choices in policy terms or so it seemed originally on the doorstep. Um, or in Joe Biden's case, from the basement, when they were out campaigning or not, as the case may have been in the last presidential election. That I can see very clearly. There's, there's obviously you can make a market and you can decide, you know, who's going to be the next president. And obviously, you can presumably have who's going to be the nominee for the president. And then, of course, that can filter down through hundreds of races. I mean, whatever the, the third of the Senate that's being re-elected and the proportion of the all of Congress, etc., and I suppose you can have local governors and things like that. How does it work in terms of the prediction markets for something like policy? things like mm-hmm. that. So it's a little different, uh, primarily driven by the use case and, and regulatory mm-hmm. treatment for a market like Predict It, an unregulated market that more caters to retail traders, uh, political enthusiasts, punters, it, it, the upset end of the spectrum from the institutional risk management. Uh, on a fully fledged futures exchange, you'd be looking more at what are the, the binary policy outcomes that are going to have the most significant widespread economic impact. So there you're going to be looking at things like uh, changes in tax rates and tax treatment. Um, you know, if we're live now, we'd be looking at the various infrastructure packages. Anytime that the, that the Congress is slinging around trillions of, you know, trillion dollar buckets of money <laughs> from one hand to another, that obviously are you know, up to trillion dollar exposures uh, on the line. So, but but in the current iteration on a market like uh, like predict it, it tends to be um, again what's kind of capturing uh, sufficient public attention that a critical mass of traders can form an actionable thesis around it. Uh, so, if you look at what's going on 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 Capitol Hill, for instance, uh, you know, right right now they're arguing over both the infrastructure bill, but also. Uh, the uh, commission establishment of a commission to investigate the the activities of January sixth, the you know the the, the assault on the U.S. Capitol, uh, and there are several markets on predicted that are tracking the actual whip count. How many yeses and nos will there be? Last week it was how many yeses and nos would there be in the House bill? Uh, so we were tracking that number very carefully, and this week it's on. Uh, the votes in the Senate and the procedural vote and when the procedural vote will happen. And, and if it happens, will they get to the 60 senators? Will they have a filibuster? Uh, if so, will the filibuster be nuked? We're, you know, we're waiting for the moment at which Chuck Schumer may decide we're going to just dispense with the filibuster and go to simple majority rules on these more controversial packages. So uh, that's why I say it depends a bit on, on the use case, whether it's more for the retail trader or the institutional risk manager. Uh, and it depends a bit on the regulatory uh, framework uh, at play also, because predict it while it's a lighter regulatory footprint, uh, given that it's technically unregulated, but still sort of overseen by the CFTC, mm-hmm. uh, they do allow uh, actual election outcomes as well as all of these policy-based uh, questions, 
Whereas on a regulated exchange, at least from the CFTC's recent and as far as we can tell current perspective, election outcomes will be the one uh, category of political outcome that they are not interested in allowing. And it's not necessarily because they don't see that economic purpose that it can't clear that bar of having sufficient two-sided hedgers. I you know, financially prefer the Democrat. I financially prefer the Republican, depending on what line of business I might be in. Um, but that they feel uh, or that they have traditionally felt that simply the existence of the market uh, could give too much of an incentive for someone to try and manipulate the price of one candidate or another to sort of falsely simulate momentum moving in their direction one way or another in order to influence uh, uh, voters at the at the ballot box on election day. And again, going back to the in-trade example, there famously was the, the case of the Romney whale back in 2012, who reportedly spent, some, I think the estimate was between four and, mil, four and seven million dollars um, plowing money into Romney shares on in-trade to try and suggest to voters. So the same way you might with a, with a, you know, an in-house poll or a push poll to suggest that momentum's going in the way of your, your candidate to, to, engender further support or goose donations or whatever it might be sort of wagging the dog theory of, you know, if you just pretend this person's winning, maybe they will be winning. Um, so I think that was sort of uh, an, an example of what gives the regulators pause about putting election uh, markets themselves on uh, an actual regulated exchange. And then of course uh, it was Nadex, uh, formerly Hedge Street that, that called their bluff, which turned out to be a bluff, tried to call their bluff on it and actually applied for approval of, uh, electoral outcomes. And uh, Bart Chilton, then uh, commissioner, uh, was on CNBC with, I think, a couple of hours screaming his head off about, about how they would never allow such a thing. Uh, so that that didn't do wonders for, you know, moving the ball forward in our quest to get policy outcomes on exchange. But, um, you know, outside of, of the election outcomes, which again are thriving and really the predominant part of predicted, at least during the election season, uh, we see no end of, of policy uh, outcomes that that are as interesting, if not more interesting, because if nothing else, they're they're more readily quantifiable in terms of you know your EPS impact of a tax change or a regulatory rule being adopted uh, versus you know which party will be in control in the White House uh, three years from now. You can you can make sort of a directional uh, evaluation of which you prefer, but it's probably harder to you know precisely quantify what the economic impact of, is of a given election. Yeah, it's very interesting. And of course, there's a famous case in the 1960s in the United Kingdom where the horse racing enthusiast, sometime gambler, raconteur and occasional television chef Clement Freud memorably spent a huge amount of, uh, huge amount of time campaigning for a, a small by-election seat in Devon Cornwall in the southwest of England. And he ended up winning. And well, he always reckoned that the fact that he'd had considerable gambles on himself in all of these obscure gambling bookmakers' offices through the constituency had rather helped him because uh, gradually the odds started coming in and therefore equally he rose in the polls, although it has to be said that was traditionally kind of place that actually voted for his kind of candidate historically as well. So it probably made for a good raconteur story as much as it was anyway statistically significant. He was skewing the vote. So therefore, I mean, and by the way, let me say thank you very much. Hello, Trixie Lopez. And good evening also to Nella Mendoza. Thank you very much for the likes on Facebook. We seem to be having a great concentration of excitement on Facebook this evening. If you'd like to get your question in, uh, do let us know, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I would like to say uh, a word of not very great thanks. If you can hear a live stream ice cream van in the background, that happens to be something that seems to be happening with remarkable regularity at this time during the course of a Tuesday evening. Now, Flip, I mean, if you're looking, therefore, at what you're going to see as contracts um, coming into the new prediction markets, how are they going to look? And therefore, what will it be feasible to hedge as a, whether you're a, an industrial participant or whether you're just a, a private investor? Um. Well, again, I think it's it's so dependent on exactly what kind of venue you're you're looking at. If you're if you're um, if you're trading on the crypto markets, really can be just about uh, anything. It can be on, you know, will the price of Dogecoin get to a dollar by the end of this month, uh, or um, uh, you know, will the will the Tokyo Olympics go forward as planned? Uh, we had a question about the Olympic outcomes. That that's one that uh, that actually Kalshi, the this newly approved DCM, is thinking about 
uh, trading. Um, but, uh, you know, I, th I think in this in the shortest term, at least in terms of sort of the next step, which, again, seems to be Calci as long as they uh, they launch as they expect to, uh, I think early this summer, um, you're going to see, I think, basically a mixture of geopolitical events, binary geopolitical events and uh, economic index contracts. So will you know, will GDP stay above 5% for the next two quarters? Or what will the, the new jobless claims uh, on uh, next next report be above or below? Again, these are all still collapsed down to some binary threshold uh, rather than uh, scalar markets. Uh, but no, no particular reason why they couldn't expand uh, into that uh, as well, as long as the CFTC didn't object. Uh, but I think with Calci, you'll see basically a mixture, at least based on their Promotional materials to date, it seems like basically an even mixture between those geopolitical kinds of events, global geopolitical events, rather than being uh, mostly U.S. focused, which predicted has been, uh, and uh, and the economic indices. Um, but again, longer term, uh, uh, to to realize, I think the potential as sort of fully fledged category of of risk management uh, you know, asset class. Uh, it basically would um, uh, mirror whatever is is sort of on the the presidential and congressional docket or parliamentary agenda. Uh, you know, wh whatever um, uh, uh, geographic venue you're you're interested in, uh, and so you'll you'll have um, some seasonality to it. Obviously, around big changes in in government or party control, presidential elections, uh, even congressional midterms, things like this. When you have uh, uh, a different party coming uh, coming into power uh, when you tend to get kind of more sweeping uh, changes enacted or at least proposed. Uh, and of course, that's the situation we're in in the U.S. now, you know, a few months into the Biden administration having uh, the trifecta, you know, bicameral control of, of Congress, uh, which they're relatively widely expected to lose at least part of in the midterms. Again, if you look on the predicted pricing, you can you can quantify that expectation, that consensus that they've got really just about a year and a half now left of having control of of everything to to try and get through as much of their agenda as they can. And so, uh, you know, are you going to see um, sweeping reforms, uh, use the reform, word reforms advisedly, but sweeping changes like eliminating the 60 vote filibuster rule, which might then enable them to to start adding new states, Puerto Rico, District of Columbia start adding new justices to the Supreme Court, uh, and if they do that, then what's the knock-on effect of that? Of, of additional, uh, you know, some Democratic uh, wish list items that could suddenly become in play that that wouldn't otherwise be if they needed that three-fifths majority. Um, so it's a long way of, of saying I don't know to your your question about what you know what's going to be in focus. Uh, it, it can really change uh, dramatically on a dime. Obviously, this time a year ago, or let's say 15 months ago. Uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't have known what the the following year was going to hold for uh, for us as a planet and species, obviously, from a public health uh, perspective, from an economic, a global economic perspective or from a uh, from a global uh, geopolitical uh, perspective. And yet it's now uh, the the after effects then even after the midstream effects of the pandemic, obviously, saturate virtually every policy decision uh, made at every level of, of government. So. Uh, things could uh, as well look, uh, you know, completely different uh, six, 12, 24 months uh, from now. But, uh, th you know, the one thing that that politics is never in short supply of, it's it's uncertainty uh, and the the uncertainty on our daily life. Yes. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day on your on your wallet and on your share price and on your on your EPS. And that's the it's that level of un uncertainty that we're we're hopeful we can use this tried and true centuries old uh, mechanism of of commodity futures markets to help uh, more efficiently uh, reallocate that risk and that uncertainty. So it's interesting. So you talk about say binaries and stuff like that on economic statistics and related things like that, which I think a lot of people can very easily relate to, and they've certainly been tried and tested in various other venues, at least unofficially over the course of time. I think uh, well, I think actually Hedge Street and Nadex were doing some stuff along those sorts of lines even mm -hmm. years ago. And certainly, I mean, their their actual original parent, I mean, wasn't it IG, which is in the UK, were doing that and that and so on. 
the, the geopolitical thing sounds very interesting because, of course, we've had a little bit of form there. I mean, wasn't there uh, DARPA and The Economist many years ago? They were going to launch an exchange, which looked, mm -hmm. I thought, looked really fascinating, but killed off at the time. I think I think that was what in the, in the George H, uh, the George W. Bush era, if I remember correctly. And, and they right. were looking at something similar. So is that going to be the kind of stuff that you're looking for or you think that you're going to see through Calsheet? Uh, not that kind of stuff in particular, I don't think, but that is a really interesting chapter in sort of the early history of, of modern prediction markets. Um, and we had on uh, Old Bull on our podcast a couple of months ago, Robin Hansen, who was one of the, the, uh, the fathers of that uh, effort with DARPA and the, what they called the policy analysis market. Uh, and the, uh, it, it was maligned as terrorism futures, but at the end of the day, that's sort of what the idea was. I mean, they, they, weren't, they weren't looking to trade on terrorist acts uh, per se, but they wanted to use this market that never really got off the ground because of the public outcry when people learned about it. Um, but they wanted to use the, the price discovery of these information markets to help uh, our defense department uh, get a better sense of emerging geopolitical risks. Uh, so it wasn't simply, you know, which city is going to be terrorist bombed next month. And you, you obviously want to be careful about creating perverse incentives. We talked a bit about the CFTC's nervousness that these markets could impact elections. Uh, you obviously don't want to create an incentive whereby someone could go put a big, uh, buy a big position on Washington, D.C. being the next victim of a terror bombing and then go and cause the, the very event in question. Um, but I think at the time it was more, uh, the backlash was more that it just, it seemed, it seemed icky. It seemed wrong to, to have a mechanism by which folks who had by whatever means, a better insight into something potentially bad that was going to happen, have a mechanism by which they could profit off of it. Um, and I think in, in, in sort of the court of public opinion, once you get to just that depth of analysis, that's the end of the analysis and, and it, it's not allowed to exist. I think the, the relevant question though is, okay, we can have a, uh, we can have a distaste for that element of it, but does the existence of the market and the information it generates, can it be expected to lessen the incidence of those actual bad underlying things that it's meant to, uh, to protect against? And it's not to say the answer is either yes or no, but it's hard, I think, again, in the court of public opinion to get to asking that second uh, second level question. Going back to another one that you had mentioned, too, with Hollywood Stock Exchange, and the, you know, this, this was something we were looking at um, as a bystander, but still looking at closely at the time, because it was, it was two, two different uh, firms, Cantor, Fitzgerald, which had bought Hollywood Stock Exchange, and then Variana Networks now. Trend Exchange, which you, you and I, Patrick, have mutual friends uh, yeah. leadership there as well. Um, and they had both gotten approval to trade box office futures. And based on this same kind of idea that it, it makes perfect sense that that producers of, uh, you know, multi hundred dollar tentpole blockbuster movies might want to hedge against, you know, having a, a, a total bomb at the at the box office. Um, but the backlash came from the studios and from the MPAA the the subtext to which was basically we don't want there to be a you know public uh, price discovery of the likelihood that something we're investing so much money in is going to flop um, and then and so it, um, the MPA lobbied Blanche, Senator Blanche Lincoln to stick into Dodd Frank an amendment that simply said for the second time in history the following products will not be allowed to be regulated by the CFTC and and that was box office futures. So to this date, it's onions and box office futures are the two Jesus. product categories that can't be traded on exchange in the United States. And the ultimate irony was, of course, then Chris Dodd, after one of the two after whom Dodd-Frank was named, when it left the Senate, he went on to become the chairman of the MPAA, which has now changed its tune and wants these kinds of <laughs> contracts. They, they, they've seen the light in terms of understanding the economic purpose. Um, but it's, it's, it's this same... Uh, trend, I think, the same pattern of the uh, a sense that a, that a certain financial product, uh, in particular, a risk product, is is objectionable or sort of icky because it makes you wonder about the perverse incentives, or just it seems wrong to profit off of certain things or to have an, an interest in certain things. Uh, but we've seen that everything from life insurance through traditional commodity futures 
uh, and the the argument that well, you know, can you have life insurance and you have an incentive to profit off of someone's death? Uh, might that even lead to someone causing someone's death in order to reap that financial benefit? And the answer is yes. Of course, every you know dime store mystery novel is about that very thing. It it happens. Uh, uh, people kill each other for insurance money sometimes. I don't mean to make light of it. It's obviously terrible, but that doesn't, that fact that that terrible thing happens in part because that product exists is not necessarily a fatal indictment of the net usefulness, the net societal benefit of the existence of that product. Uh, and oh, so I, th I think we're at that, you know, we're at that sort of point where you go back to South Park's fantastic, whatever it was, you know, parental murder porn or whatever their episode right. was, where everybody's getting killed off. And, and certainly there is something, I mean, right now on a cable TV channel somewhere in the world is a story about a husband and wife where one party killed the other and they just sure. taken out $150,000 insurance policy. So, so mm -hmm. I, I get that bit. And, and equally, it's interesting because you look at actually what was the what was the most interesting one of the most interesting developments out of the South Sea bubble, and thereafter actually they banned the ability to take out life insurance on a third party, which was a very interesting and lively market in the early 18th century. So if you saw me walking down the street and I was coughing and spluttering a bit, you didn't think I was too good. There were a lot of people were buying speculations on those. And actually the way to do it as a leverage bet was to, to get in there and buy the first, you know, buy the first couple of months of premium and then you would just abandon it if I survived into the third month and recovered from whatever was making me cough. And, and that was a that was an early regulatory structure. I hadn't realized the Motion Pictures uh, Association of America had actually changed their tune. I'm glad to hear it. In fact Ironically, it would have possibly been the greatest boon in history to the MPAA because it might have helped them garner a lot of money over the course of COVID because everybody would have been along mm. what box office returns were going to be at certain points in time. And of course, yeah. the box office literally didn't open, um, which is mm. an incredible thing, the force majeure. So, so that's really very, very, very interesting. Let's, let's just switch gears slightly just a second. We'll come back to this in a moment. Trixie Lopez. Hi, Trixie. Great to see you this evening. She's asking, how can markets limit manipulation? And that's obviously mm. quite an interesting question in relation to whether it's the box office or, or something else in this sort of fascinating prediction genre. Right. That's a very good question. And I'm not going to pretend to, to know the answer uh, other than to say it's something that we do think quite a bit about in particular. Uh, so where do you draw the circle in terms of who's permitted to trade uh, on an exchange like this? So again, for, for a, uh, a platform like Predict It, given that it's unregulated, states quite explicitly, look, don't trade on here if, you're, if you don't want to be trading in a venue where there might be people who have better information than you or you know, something that looks and smells quite a bit like insider information. Um, so there's no attempt there, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, to ward off folks who would be effectively insiders, with, with the exception of the fact that the Stock Act, the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act, does in, in a lot of instances prevent actual members of Congress and their staff from, from trading on information that they have by virtue of their job that's not public. Um, on a regulated exchange, um, it's I think a little bit more of a of a delicate balancing act because of course you want a, a, as much good information in the market as possible. Again, you want as good price discovery as possible. You want as fair a price as possible for for people uh, entering and exiting positions. So you don't want to sort of wall off so many knowledgeable participants that you're excluding appropriate and good insights from the market. On the other hand, you don't necessarily want you know. Chief Justice Roberts going and putting a big position down on you know how the court's going to rule right before he he authors an opinion, um, uh, either because of the market manipulative effects or simply because it can impact the policymaking. Um, but again, there are there are a lot of um, gradations between you know John Q. Citizen and the Chief Justice. Uh, you know, obviously members of Congress and their staffs, as I said, are already proscribed by law. Um, but then do you, do you also exclude any, any lobbyist or maybe just a lobbyist working on a bill in question within a given market? Uh, do you exclude all the clients of that lobbyist or a company who knows that they might be about to retain a lobbyist to lobby in favor of or against a certain bill or, or, or uh, shareholders with above X percent holdings in a company that 
may plan to or has at this some point in the recent past retained a lobbyist to work on a certain so you can see you start to draw wider and wider concentric circles uh, and we haven't really come to a definitive answer in terms of where you you try and set those boundaries to again incorporate as much good information in the market prices as possible and yet enable regulators and rank and file market participants to have good confidence that there is a semblance of a level playing field and that you've uh, as best you can, I think, try to approximate the same uh, philosophical guidelines in terms of what is privileged uh, or, or material non-public information uh, that folks ought not to be you know, using in, 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 in profiting off of less connected, less insider market participants. Okay, it's a very, very interesting answer. Thank you very much, Trixie Lopez. Great question altogether. And you know, it's interesting going from one end, which is the ultimate insiders, and obviously one of the one of the most hilarious markets, which even comes up with the health warning, which is in the sports business, not in the political prediction business in the UK, for example, is the next manager of certain sports teams, which have been notoriously prevalent to insider trading and all sorts of weird, wacky and wonderful odds taking place at uh, different times, mostly because I, I suppose if you see a well-known football manager shaking hands with the chairman in the car park or something like that, you're the gardener, then it's probably a career-enhancing moment if you go off and put your life savings on him being the next manager on the grounds that he's probably likely to be the man in the, the man in the hot seat. But that's quite interesting. And obviously you're talking there about the, the really ultimately insiders and how they can potentially exploit the market and you need to protect them from manipulation. Thank you very much, Trixie. Now, Mike Velasco is asking a question at the opposite end because you've been talking a lot about obviously the professional markets and so on like Kalshi, but you were also talking about predicted, which is clearly mm -hmm. a much greater melange of uh, everyone from experts through to those who've got only a very, very casual interest in predicting all manner of things. And that how, how can those sorts of markets truly attract, I mean, uninformed or, or relatively novice traders and start to bring them on? Well, that's part of the beauty of political trading is that no trader feels that they are uninformed about politics. It's the one thing that everyone has an opinion on, not only of what the, you know, who the better candidate is, what the better policy choice is, but what is likely to happen. You find no shortage of overconfidence uh, among uh, traders. And I, I say that only mildly uh, facetiously because, you know, in the last few, again, from an American pr perspective, the last few presidential administrations, the the electoral and political um, theater has become much much more of a of a spectator sport. I think to some extent it always has been, um, but uh, I think certainly the 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 extent to which the average non political you know, non political professional is engaged with at least on an informal level on a daily basis um, the uh, you know political goings on, the actual sausage making, not just the, you know, the federal election every two or four years, um, that uh, you, you really, you, you certainly do have different levels of sophistication, different levels but to which the traders are, are, are genuinely informed. Uh, but again, no shortage of confidence among uh, just about any trader that they are sufficiently informed to come and, and put some money behind it. But of course, that's what markets do well, too, is they they quickly separate the smart money from the dumb money. And uh, those that are around for a while to continue investing are you know, tend to be the ones that are somewhat more judicious or somewhat better informed, um, uh, you know, about uh, about these underlying uh, events. But it, it's been interesting, too. And I saw this more directly when I was still working for uh, predicted, but the degree to which folks who really are not political professionals, uh, maybe enthusiasts or or, or not, they're you know, young professionals, college students, um, they're sort of interested in politics and they may have been how they found their way to the site, uh, but within a short period of time are suddenly becoming absolute experts within, you know, either across the political spectrum or within very uh, discernible niches that... Um, uh, predictive markets would tend to address things like uh, uh, polling markets. A lot of these they don't run series on anymore, but they used to do weekly polling series, both on you know, the generic congressional ballot. Do you prefer Democrats or Republicans? You know, Trump's approval, uh, Trump versus Clinton, Trump versus Biden, head-to-head -head polling. Um, as I mentioned on Trump's Twitter market, which is arguably somewhat more uh, frivolous product category, but obviously Trump went on to prove that it was a, 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 a you know, if not 
the most, one of the most uh, significant you know, policy setting or policy communication tools of his administration. So uh, I'd argue that it wasn't uh, entirely frivolous, but you had people that were setting up you know, third party websites to track and analyze and, and monitor Trump and all the other uh, political figures that we had uh, tweet markets on uh, to track their Twitter activity and how likely they were to hit certain brackets within these connected markets. You know, people that had never watched a congressional hearing before suddenly pouring through transcripts and reading bill markups and things like that. So the, the actual civic engagement of folks who, again, maybe were sort of interested in politics, but not involved in politics. Uh, one side effect of this is you, you suddenly had many thousands of super well-informed um, uh, civic-minded voters uh, and contributors to the political dialogue that you might not otherwise, because when your own money is on the line, that tends to really crystallize your thinking and it makes you humble. If you come in overconfident, you lose money a couple of times, it quickly humbles you and makes you realize that uh, uncertainty is real. And, and to the extent that you can actually divorce yourself from your ideological um, uh, inclinations on the way in, uh, you're much more likely to have some of your money remaining on the way out. I, and it's interesting, actually, I mean, you, you make a great point. Years ago, I remember because I was being asked about this early concept that I'd had in Capital Market Revolution, this is the 90s, about the whole concept of sports prediction markets and effectively political prediction markets and so on. And it was at some big futures conference ahead of, I can't remember what it was, the European Football Championship or something. And it was interesting because I said, well, hold on a second, let's go out in the street and ask how many people know, are interested in what the price of bonds are. And if we're lucky, two, two out of 10 people are gonna be interested. If, if we look further along the tree and ask people, what are the prices of you know, interest rates right now? probably you get up to four, maybe five out of 10 people because they're either savers, they're borrowers, they've got mortgages. And I mean, particularly in Europe where you don't have the American system, so therefore they're actually keenly acutely aware of what the, the mortgage rate was. This was, of course, back in the 1990s when we still had a yield curve before quantitative easing killed it. But you know, then I said, and who's gonna win the next election? Well, suddenly you've got like eight out of 10 people are gonna be voicing a very interested and enthusiastic opinion, even if they don't necessarily know the facts. And then I said, and who's gonna win in the you know European Championship football game, whoever it was, the weekend. To which the answer was about twelve out of ten people had an opinion on it. <laughs> Everybody had an opinion on it at that point in time. So I, I think it's a fascinating point that you make, and thank you very, very much, Mike Velasco, for a great question. It's lovely to see you once again. And let me therefore move on to. I think this is a super question, actually, Jay Navarroza. It's lovely to see you this evening. What are some examples of prediction markets? most spectacular forecasting successes and failures? That's a really, really good question, especially in an era where we've had uh, a series of kind of political black swan events from the you know Trump surprise victory in 2016 to the Brexit, original Brexit vote yeah. and um, countless more uh, obscure examples that would be only known to you know the predicted denizens that have anguished over them uh, in in recent months and years. But um, you know the the Trump election his first in 2016 is um, is probably the one that comes to mind most vividly. But I'm not sure which category I'd put it in in terms of a success or a failure. So the the markets and predicted at least did not have Trump winning. Uh, needless to say, but they were giving Trump a higher uh, likelihood of winning uh, than virtually any of the forecasters, uh, the the you know sabermetricians and probabilistic forecasters, the 538s of the world. Uh, that being said, I think 538 gave him the highest odds of any of his ilk, uh, and, and I think uh, Nate Silver and 538 and Predictit were roughly uh, on par. Of course, the Predictit price would would fluctuate throughout the day, and of course, on election day, fluctuated quite a lot. Um, uh, on that election day, November 2016, the Predictit price did get there, show it swinging towards Trump much faster than other real-time uh, indicators. Like that was the first year I think the New York Times put out their needle that on election night sort of shows the odds wavering between zero and a hundred of, of uh, who's going to win uh, and predict it was a faster indicator uh, of that. Um, uh, likewise, uh, predicted did not see uh, Brexit coming, uh, but we actually, this is when I was still uh, working for predict it. We had some machine learning uh, folks do 
some kind of under the hood uh, testing of the uh, of the data, all still fully anonymized. So you couldn't tell who was trading what. But basically, if you were to look backward and say, okay, I want to sort of score uh, internally the different traders um, according to how well they predict, you know, certain kinds of things, whether it's Twitter activity, elections, uh, vote counts, uh, polling uh, trends, things like that. And then based on their scores over time, when an event is unfolding, if I, if I kind of um, tweak the score, the overall uh, price uh, in favor of those that have tended to do better on those markets in the past, do I get a, a sharper price? And it turns out that yes, not only do you get a better price, uh, but you then can see them coming before uh, any financial markets, global financial markets that were open at the time. Uh, in Brexit, you had about, uh, I, I think it was an hour's uh, head start on the Forex market. So I think you could have captured about a seven percentage point move uh, in global foreign exchange, which is to say if you're sufficiently confident in a sufficiently liquid market that you could have made as much money as you wanted, basically. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's a small universe, uh, right, of, of, of data points. So obviously, well cautioned to draw any uh, two broad conclusions from that. Um, but while powerful, you know, markets aren't magical at the end of the day, they're just an efficient mechanism of aggregating, you know, collective insights, uh, and in a market like predicted, which does have this, this pretty onerous $850 position limit and 5,000 uh, participants per market at a given time. So these artificial constraints do, uh, dull that signal. Uh, or they, they, they limit the degree to which the market is good at separating the wheat from the chaff and, and distilling the best information, separating that smart money signal from the dumb money signal. So th they're not magical. They're just an efficient way to, to aggregate information and insight and intelligence. Um, uh, so there, there, have been, there have been some impressive uh, upsets that the, the market saw coming uh, before uh, traditional indicators or pollsters or forecasters, financial markets. Uh, but for the most part, that when they when they operate best, it's simply uh, the most real time and kind of most granular uh, way to quantify uh, what the 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 crowd, the public at large, the market uh, thinks about an unfolding uncertainty. Fabulous! Thank you very much for the question, Jane Abrosa. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you look at how some of these events have worked out and how they've gone over time. And certainly the Brexit one was quite interesting. I suppose the other hand, we've got to say, I mean, were prediction markets materially worse than opinion pollsters over the course of the last 10 years? And I think we can safely say that prediction markets have done better, uh, getting mm -hmm. closer to most of the results a lot of the time, certainly in UK elections, for example, and so on. How did things go actually over the Trump election because what, I, what I'm remembering is we did a show we did a panel with you with a couple of guys from the UK if I remember correctly right. before last summer and mm -hmm. uh, that was really interesting because at that point in time all the money was down on Trump I mean Trump had an incredible runaway amount of money being speculated on him across the prediction markets as I recall how did things right. go there was was the Biden election victory actually foreseen by the prediction markets or was it all Trump money the there was a lot of Trump money in the prices. It would it, it would seem, or it, at least as with 2016, the market gave Trump a higher chance of being reelected than the forecasters and pollsters. Um, and you know, if you want to go simply by grading the the singular probabilistic forecast, that's obviously a worse forecast, right? If you're predicting a binary event and both are saying that candidate A will win, but one is saying A will win with a with more uncertainty, less confidence that A will win. In this case, the prediction market is saying Biden would win, but less confidently, uh, and he did win, then you, you have to give the edge to, uh, to everyone else. Uh, but I think the main takeaway from the 2020 election is that it was a lot closer uh, than, than the consensus believed. Uh, and the, the consensus or average uh, polling uh, delta between Biden and Trump going to the election day, I believe was eight or 8.4 points, something like that. And the actual uh, popular vote delta was uh, four points less. I think it was, I believe it was 4.4 versus 8.4 if you went by the polling averages. Uh, and so you had a, a four point shift, about half the the uh, the gap was, was just polling error. 
And uh, I think it was another half a percentage point. In other words, if you had a, a, a uniform national shift uh, of 4.5 rather than 4.0, that gives Trump the election. So in terms of how off the polls were versus how off they needed to be to have gotten it directionally wrong, they were about 90% as much wrong as they would have needed to be. Um, so the, the, the pollsters and the forecasters defended that as saying, well, sure, the polls were sort of wrong, but we were still right to give Trump up to, in some cases, uh, Biden, I should say, a 99% chance of winning. Uh, many of them had him between 88 to 99% to win going into election day based on that 8.4 uh, uh, percentage point difference in the polling was to say, see, our polls, our, our polls based modeling is so robust that even when the polls are completely off and uniformly in the wrong direction, we still got it right. I, I think the more introspective way to look at that was to say, okay, 2016 showed us that the polls might not only be wrong by a few points, but can be directionally wrong. Uh, the, there was a whole bunch of navel gazing and they decided, you know, good news. We've fixed all the problems here. We're now waiting by education and other things we didn't used to do. Polls are fixed. You can trust it. They were actually wrong by more in 2020 than they were in 2016 by a, an extra point or two more wrong in 2020. It's just that directionally they were still right. It was still the, the they picked the right winner. So you get really no reckoning post 2020 in terms of why they've even gotten worse when they supposedly had gone back and fixed the biases, deliberate or otherwise, that existed consistently, always in the same direction within the polling, not always, but predominantly. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's the un uh, or underappreciated uh, lesson of the 2020 election cycle is that polls have gotten worse and they're less reliable, the more subject to house effect, the more subject to herding. So they tend to be wrong in the same direction. Uh, and so you do still have this this field, this this industry of uh, of the forecasters, the black box, you know, model builders, um, whose models are all built on the polls. I mean, some of them then throw a fundamentals layer on top, a sort of a toggleable uh, enhancement of the polls-based model, but they're all still predominantly polls-based. And so if those forecasters are simply a way of formalizing or quantifying what the polling aggregates tell you, uh, then it's garbage in and garbage out. And, and I would argue that, uh, uh, any mechanism, whether it was a market or a forecaster that that looked at the 2020 election on the eve of the election and said there's more uncertainty here than the pollsters are telling you, made a better prediction, uh, even though they were saying there's a better chance Trump will win than you think, and he, Trump didn't win. So again, to score it based on any traditional method of uh, of scoring forecasters, that's a worse forecast. But I think it was a I think it was a better read of what the actual. Uh, situation was on the ground uh, that that Biden had not sewn it up by between eight and nine points, and that it was going to be relatively a relatively close election, as measured by how much more of a national uniform national polling shift would you have had to see to flip the the election Trump's way. Fascinating altogether. So, therefore, let's just ask you one very quick question at the last moment. Thank you, Jane Navarroza, for that question. It's been really really interesting. So, Nelly Mendoza is asking. Basically, sounds like somebody's very eager to get into Calci here. What's the feasibility? When's it happening that we're going to have a futures derivative prediction market in place? So, and this, I'm presuming the question, I mean, on a, a truly regulated uh, exchange. Yeah, market. And, and so, so Calci does have that approval in place. In fact, they just got another uh, piece of it uh, last month or six weeks ago. Uh, which exempts them from certain Dodd-Frank swaps reporting uh, requirements that were not meant to apply to, to binary products. Uh, so they they have the paperwork in hand. Uh, I think it's really an internal operational uh, uh, matter at this point, getting from where they are now to having real live trading. Uh, la last we'd heard that they'll they'll go to a live beta trading real money products in early June. So that's just a couple weeks from now, uh, and hopefully within within you know a few months they'll they'll be more fully launched. So this, this does now seem, I mean, knock wood and you never know until it's actually here, but I, this does now seem to be around the corner again, not in kind of the fully fledged uh, implementation that, that, that we think we eventually arrive at, which is to say this is, uh, this would be viewed much the same way that uh, uh, again, weather or hard commodities, soft commodities, interest rates uh, are, are part of the complex of hedgeable uh, external financial risk. But, but I think within 
you know, a couple of weeks to a couple of months, uh, we as an industry will have taken one, you know, very large step there. Excellent. And therefore, we're looking forward to how Sharp Square Capital Management is going to perform through the course of that wonderfully exciting Calci prediction market, which is going to be the first US regulated market, which hopefully answers your show, Nelia Mendoza. Thank you very much, Mike Velasco, for your kind comments. Thank you to Marianne Madeira, Trixie Lopez, Jay Navarroza for all of your questions during the course of the show. We've got a week off next week because we're going to be in the immediate aftermath of a UK bank holiday and Memorial Day weekend. Interested to see how the ladies are going to do for uh, Team Peretta Motorsports. They're starting at 33rd on the grid for the Indy 500 on Sunday. One looking like a great motor race, even if it's got a socially distanced crowd. We're going to have thoughts from the heart of Wall Street. That's going to be with Kenny Policari. He's a very famous floor trader and media figure. He's coming up on June the 8th, which will be our next issue. It remains for me to say thank you very much to Beata, Racy, and Jamil in production for bringing together this IPO vid 033. We've been at the sharp end of prediction markets with Flip Pedo, the founder and managing director of Sharp Square Capital Management. And I think it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And indeed, I believe there would be a hundred percent predictive power that this has been a most enjoyable and useful conversation flip we wish you all the success we hope that calci comes to fruition and indeed that we can see many more regulated and exciting prediction markets in the future thanks for joining the show ladies and gentlemen i wish you a great week in life and market and wish you actually a great fortnight in life and markets enjoy the bank holiday next monday if you're so eligible we'll see you on june the 8th Thanks very much for watching. My name is Patrick L. Young. You've been watching IPO Fit Livestream 33 at the sharp end of prediction markets with Flip Pitto.